Open your Bibles this morning, if you brought them, Ephesians chapter 6. Um, for the benefit of our visitors, we've got some visitors here this morning. Uh, we've been in this letter for a good, good many weeks. We're nearing the end of our study, letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus. And so far we have covered two main ideas that have occupied the letter to this point. First, identifying our identity, who we are in Christ, our calling, the place to which we're called. We are the adopted children. We are citizens of his kingdom. We are members of his household. We said that over and over again, that should be cemented in our thinking. That's who we are. Understanding our identity is so critical. And then the second point was living or walking, being the term Paul used, walking in a way consistent with who we are. So that's the letter to this point. Understanding who we are and walking or living in a way that is consistent with that. You put those two together, you get the Christian walk. Pretty straightforward. Last week, we turned to the, the third and final principle in the letter, in the, letter the third, third idea, and that is to recognize that our walk is not without opposition. It's not like we just breeze through life, like any of us need to be told that, right? We understand that. There is a, an opposition to our walk as we attempt to conduct our lives in a manner that does reflect who we are in Christ. Um, there's a challenge. The evil one. Scripture's clear on this. Satan himself. And he's not alone. He has all of his minions, his horde, along with him. That would call into question who we are. would cause us to doubt that we are the adopted children of God. He would have us to believe uh, that well, no, we're not. Or that if we are, we're maybe not first-class citizens. I can remember one of the points that my parents made over and over and over again to me as an adoptee was never doubt how precious you are to us. Never doubt how much you are ours because, man, we had to work really hard to get you. <laughs> and you cost us a lot of money, too. So they made it clear in no uncertain terms that even though I was adopted, I was their child and never gave me any reason to question that. But the evil one would have us question that. The evil one would have us question whether our citizenship in the kingdom is of any value or that there even is a kingdom. He would cause us to doubt that, to think that there's no value in that or the fact that we're members of God's household. The evil one would question, cause us to question that, try to prevent us from being um, who we are. Now, one note I, I would bring about, without going too far into this, just to make the observation, the evil one can't change who we are. In Christ, we are his. Jesus made that absolutely clear. He said, my sheep know my voice, and no one can snatch them from my hand. The evil one can't, can't take us. He can't take our status away, but he can make us question our status. And if we buy into that and we question our status, we stopped acting like who we are, and then we act like our status has been changed. The evil one can't change our status, but he can cause us to question it and in doing that, impact our behavior. So that's really what we're about, is remembering who we are and living our lives accordingly, even when life, because of the evil one, throws so much difficulty our way, so much conflict our way. And it's when we're responding to that conflict 
that our topic of this morning comes to bear, and that is in chapter 6, beginning in verse 6. We just started on this last week. So um, we're going to read down through verse 20, but we're just going to start with the first four verses and then touch on the rest as we go. So Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the powers, against world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Father, thank you for your word, Lord. Father, we know experientially that life throws many challenges at us. Father, sometimes, if we're honest with ourselves, they're of our own making. But Father, we also know that there are spiritual causes to many of the conflicts that we face. There is an evil one, Father, who would oppose us, who would kill, steal, and destroy. Our Lord has warned us. Father, as we encounter those kinds of challenges, we look to you to give us wisdom through your word, to know how we should respond. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. So uh, Paul's response or Paul's instruction to the Ephesian church, which as we noted last week and we've noted before, this church was no stranger to conflict of a spiritual origin. Uh, Paul's instruction consists of two things. Number one, taking up the full armor of God. Number two, that they would be able to stand. So one is method, taking up the full armor of God. The other is goal, so that you can stand. That's how those two points work together. The goal is to stand firm, to resist the schemes of the evil one. The method, Paul points out, is to take up the full armor of God. Well, let's talk about the goal first. The goal is to stand. Well, what does that mean? That just means to maintain our status, maintain our station, not let ourselves be fooled into thinking that we're any less that we are in Christ. Now, outside of Christ, not much. But in Christ, adopted, citizens of his kingdom, the eternal kingdom, members of his household. Don't want to give that up. Don't want to let that be taken from us, if only in our thinking, right? Our connection with our Father in heaven is intimate. That, again, of a child with a parent. The evil one would have us believe that really isn't the case, and he wants us to act like that's not the case. As citizens in his heaven, we, are, we have both privilege and responsibility. It's our privilege to walk in those. As members of his household, you know, I don't think there's anything more defeating than the expression, every man for himself. That has no place in the thinking of a Christian. We are members of a household. This is the household of God. We should never forgive that. Every time we stand by a brother and sister, or brother or sister who's having a hard time of it, every time we affirm one another in these identities that we understand, we're standing. We're doing the work of the kind of warfare Paul's talking about here. That's the goal, to walk, to live as an expression of who we are, even in the face of the hordes of hell telling us otherwise, sometimes screaming it in our ears that we are less than what we are. No. The goal is that we maintain our place 
and not let ourselves be discouraged. So let's talk about the method. How do we do that? We take up the full armor of God. Now, normally on this topic, we're prone to a couple of mistakes. Uh, first, because Paul's drawing a visual here. Paul's touching on a visual in the minds of his first century readers, the Ephesian church. Typically, because this passage is so visually, we, of course, draw a picture too. But we get one that's like way out of sync, right? And, and I, I can prove it to you. If, if after service, you go home, wait after service, please. Google. Full armor of God toy set, right? Something will crop up from like a Bible bookstore or some, you know, source, and it'll be this really cool little toy, you know, like G.I. Joe Christian style, that looks like it came right out of the Crusades. Seriously, but 90% of what you see be right out of the Crusades, right? That's wrong for so many reasons, right? Not to mention about a thousand years, right? Um, or, you know, Google, you know, full armor of God costume in case the church is going to do something that requires the kids to put it on, and you boom, like right out of the Crusades, right? No, that is not the model. Won't go into details, but that is certainly not the model. That's not what we're after. We're after something that fits into the first century, right? Or, um, or we, like, we get caught up in the details. I've noticed that. It's interesting. Most commentaries, modern commentaries on this passage, spend a lot of time talking about the details, you know, the detail of the sword, the detail of the helmet, you know, which is it's appropriate. But if you go back to the early church fathers, they don't talk about it at all. No, they only talk about the righteousness and the truth and, the, and those things. That's what the early church focused on. Now, that's possibly because they understood the other stuff. They had the visual already and knew it. But we don't want to get caught up in the details of the visual. We want to get caught up in the point that Paul is making. So we want to make sure we're careful. So when we talk about this, this expression, the full armor of God, the full armor, and some of you I know have probably talked about this before, but it's been a while. Uh, it's actually one word. The word full armor is one word, and it's a word you might recognize. It's the word panoplia. Panoplia, and that comes right into English. If you look in an English dictionary, you'll find the word panoply. And we don't use it very often. It's kind of an old word. But you might go out at night, for example, one of these clear nights. We've had the last few evenings, and the sky is just clear, and it's full of stars. And you might, if you're given to older expressions, make reference to the panoply of heaven. That's what that same word is, right? So it's a word that in English means a lot of everything, just the full expression uh, of something. That's, that's the word that Paul uses here. And it comes, as many words do, Greek words, from two words. Pan, which means all or everything. If you're old enough to remember Pan American Airlines, then you're as old as I am, or almost, yeah. So that means everything. They flew to all the Americas, right? It comes from the word pan, and then it comes from the word opla. Opla, opla means stuff. So like even today, in, in a Greek conversation, if you're, you know, leaving your friend's house, they tell you you don't forget anything, they say, you know, be sure to take all your opla, all your stuff, okay? But that's, that's the last meaning the word came to. If you go back in the word's history a little bit, the word opla actually represented the stuff of a soldier, a very specific kind of soldier. The word opla was the stuff of a soldier called the oplites. And that too comes into English. You can find that in an English dictionary, the word hoplite. It's a reference to the heavy infantrymen of ancient Greece. 
So Paul is touching on the memory of the Ephesian believers, saying make sure you, you, you bring or you're ready for your spiritual conflict with the image of this ancient Greek hoplite in mind. And the reason they were called hoplite, you take that word all the way back to its very beginnings, you come to the word oblon, right? Same word carried all, through all those different expressions. And the oblon, which made the oblites, the hoplite, what he was, was this thing. This is the one piece that really expresses everything that it was to be that kind of soldier. And that's completely with, consistent with how Paul describes it in the passage. Because as Paul goes through that whole list of all the stuff, the one he gives the most attention to, he says, in addition to all, or in some translations, above everything else, take this. So if we're going to pay attention in details, this is the one piece we should spend some attention with. And we're going to do that today. We're going to talk about the oblon, because that's the visual Paul is touching on, right? Um, in order to understand this, again, the best way to understand this is, is to have one of these and to explain you know, how it was used, why it is this particular piece was, was so important. Um, I always like to have a, a, a model, a guinea pig. So we have any volunteers? Good deal. Come on up. Thank you very much. You may regret this. Left arm, left arm. And I'm sorry, remind me of your name. Remind me of your name. Nate, this is Nate. Nate, thank you very much. Looks good, doesn't he? He's about the right height, a little bit on the tall side. A little on the tall side. Archaeologists, most of the hoplites they found have been shorter. Of course, that may be a reason, a byproduct of wearing this. Which, afterwards, anybody that wants to come up and put this on your head, you're more than welcome to. I won't. Um, it's about 18 pounds. Yeah, yeah, it's heavy. And this is a, mu a museum-grade copy. Well, by that, I mean it's actually copied from... I should turn around so you can see it. I won't ask you to put this on. Um, it's, a, it's a, a specific replica of something in a museum, right? They found these by the thousands on battlefields. I'll explain why later. So, Nate, you're doing great. You're doing perfect. Okay, so in order to understand why this particular thing was so important, we have to understand how it was used, and it was used in something called the phalanx. And again, we're, talking, we're not just talking about the history here. This is the visual Paul is touching on. We want to keep that in mind. And in all of this, he's talking about faith, right? He connects this to faith. So how does the phalanx work? Well, you remember that expression in Romans where, where Paul says, the God of peace will soon trample Satan under your feet? That's a direct allusion to the phalanx. Because the way the phalanx worked was when it came into conflict, you know, contact with the enemy, the idea wasn't so much to slash him or poke him, you know, like in the movies, you got the spear and the sword. That was all secondary. The main idea for the phalanx was to act like a bulldozer. Yeah, yeah. To, you know how the shield is curved and there's no pointy thing in the front, right? Not like in the movies, right? The reason it's curved, one, is, is if he gets tired, he can kind of rest it on his shoulder a little bit. But the main reason was, if Nate comes in a little bit low, and then as he, as he contacts the enemy, comes up, it'll have the effect of lifting the enemy off their feet so that they can be conveniently thrown over on their back. 
and then the phalanx would march over the top. Now, not to be like gross or anything, but the, the phalanx spear thrust, sword thrust, I'm sorry with the sword, the phalanx sword thrust was down as much as out. And the phalanx spear thrust, now the phalanx was intended to be several rows deep, okay? So the guys in the front would stick their spears over the top, and the guys in the second row over the top, and the third row over the top. Well, you start getting farther back, and you don't want those guys pointing their spears down, right? If you're in the front row, you don't want the guy in the sixth row pointing his spear down. You want him pointing it up. Well, the spear had a point on both ends for that very reason. So that as they marched over the top, right, to add to that, and again, I don't mean to be gross, but it was reality, the shoes, the sandals had really sharp cleats. And it wasn't just for traction, right? Um, one uh, Spartan, or one hoplite army, the Spartans, they, they didn't refer to defeating the enemy. They referred to threshing their enemy. That's, that was their goal. So the whole idea was to flatten the enemy, right? Now, again, the shield played a really unique role in that, in that everything else, we all read the text, we can read the text all apart, other pieces of armor, they're all expendable. You can keep fighting without them. You can lose your helmet, you can lose your shoes, your sword, your spear, but based on the way the, the phalanx worked, you could fight as long as you had this, but you lose this, you've lost everything. The Spartans understood this concept better than anyone, and that would have been in the forefront of anybody's thinking. The Spartan soldier came back without this. They could buy anything else, buy a new helmet, spear, breast, all that stuff. But you come back without this, you're out of the army, lose your citizenship, all of your possessions are seized by the city and sold at auction, and you and your family are exiled forever from the city. Pausanias, the, the, the historian who records a lot of this, talks about one particular incident where the armor was bought by the family, and the last piece to be given was this, the opalum. And one particular mother, when she handed this to her son, said, with it or on it. Those were the only two ways she wanted her son to come home. With it. We're laying on it because it was so essential. And what made it so essential? Now, I've left you hanging there for a minute because I wanted you to kind of get comfortable and um, settled in there. What I want you to know, now don't be moving it now. Nate's doing a really good job protecting his center and his left. I almost lost track of where I was, left and right. He's doing a really good job of protecting his center and his left. But his right is fairly exposed, especially if he's holding something else with that arm. His right side is very exposed. So what can Nate count on to protect his right side? Another guy. Yeah, you see this extra piece that's sticking out here? This thing weighs 22 pounds, right? Every ounce counts. Right? Are you feeling it? You feeling that 22 pounds? Yeah. Yeah. If he could do without this, he'd probably be more than happy to, but it's there for a reason. It's there to protect the guy standing here. Just as he is counting on a guy standing here. See, that is the essence of the phalanx, is the bond of trust that existed across the face of the line because unlike every other piece of armor on the list, 
this thing is shared. Yeah, it's his. He's responsible for it and better bring it home. But this is shared. And it's shared at least three ways. Now, I'll take that from you. You've done a really good job. Give him a round of applause because it is heavy. It's not comfortable. And everybody that wants to is free to come up and try it afterwards. Now, I say it's shared. It's shared three different ways. It's shared first across the face of the line. That's pretty obvious. It's like scales on a fish overlapping. And what that required, again, was that bond of trust that connected everybody. Right? That occupied 90% of their training in a, in a hoplite army. How to maintain the unity of the line in the face of the enemy. Because there's only two ways you can defeat it. Get around the sides, and it was a hoplite general's job to put his army where you couldn't get around the sides or break the line apart. Because if that line stays together, it doesn't matter how many people come against it. I mean, you read the historical record. There were how many at Thermopylae? Less than 10,000 hoplites. How many Persians? Close to a million. They could not break the phalanx. Only after they found a way to get around behind it did they defeat it. Marathon, 30,000 Persians, 10,000 hoplites. 30,000 failed. They lost almost the entire Persian army. Plataea, same numbers. Not one Persian went home. Because the, as long as the phalanx stayed intact and was not broken, it could not be defeated. And that was entirely based on that bond of trust that existed between, right? You know, it's rather interesting as, as a historical note, the normal human reaction to a hoplite in conflict was, because you got your left side's good, your right side's kind of exposed, what would you do? The whole line would move to the right, you know? And so, that, so, so the part of, of the strategy of the hoplite generals was to incorporate things into that. So when push came to shove, when, when, when the very existence of the country was at risk, which is the Battle of Plataea, you know what the generals did? They put the Spartans on one end and the Athenians on the other because neither one of, either one of those groups wanted to let the other side, they had failed. So they, they tied into the pride of those two cities, and it just compacted the, the, the line together. Right? That bond of trust across the face. But that's only one way it was shared. The other way it was shared was in the depth of the line, right? The depth of the line. The, the phalanx was never intended to be one row deep, right? It was always intended to be multiple rows of sheep, of shields. And that's the interesting thing. If you read the historical accounts, you will never read an account that says the phalanx was really shallow that day. It was only three men deep. Mm -mm. You know what you read? It was three shields deep. Or the phalanx was really deep that day. It was 12 shields deep. Show up without your shield. And we're talking about faith, right? We're talking about faith this whole time. Show up without your shield. You don't count. Now, why was the depth so important? Well, you get out there in a the field, and you're standing there shoulder to shoulder, and the enemy comes at you. The only way they can do it is to overrun you, and you're trying to flatten them. What happens when those two lines come together? Well, if you're on the phalanx side, about a second after the first row hits, the second row shows up. That's why there's no pointy thing in the front. Because unless you happen to be in the front row, who are you hitting with your shield? Your own guy. But you're hitting him in the back as hard as you can. And it turned this mass of humanity into a combination bulldozer jackhammer. 
all for the purpose of lifting it up. Now, what's the point in that? The point in that is this, and this is so important for us as believers to recognize, that in the mentality of a hoplite, it didn't matter if you were in the front of the line or the back. Everybody had the same job. Push that way. Didn't matter if you were in the front, somewhere in the middle, or in the back. Everybody had the same job. Push that way. Third way it was shared. When a hoplite went down, which very rarely did they, when a hoplite went down, remember, these, these are two armies trying to crush one another, right? You don't want to be on the ground. Unsafe place to be. When a hoplite went down, those immediately around him would push out into the enemy line, extend their shields away from their bodies over their fallen comrade. And those behind them would then extend their shields out over the ones that had exposed themselves. A complete commitment of trust because a brother had fallen. Does that speak to the church? Does that speak to us when someone is, is struggling, when someone is down, when someone is falling, that we extend our faith when theirs is proving inadequate? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. So by drawing on the picture of the shield, Paul created a picture for the church. John understood this, 1 John 5, 4. For whoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. What are the next two words? Our faith. See, that's why I think this is so important for us, is because in our Western Christianity, we are so individualized. We are so caught up in what I am doing, or what I am thinking, or my place. This is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. When Paul uses this expression, the full armor, he's drawing to his reader's mind an army of soldiers who are wholly dependent on one another, whose greatest strength was in the bond they shared. The bond they shared was more critical than the soldier themselves, and whose greatest efforts were always to maintain that bond. I would suggest that the entire reason the Apostle Paul uses this terminology is to stress the importance of standing together. If you look at this passage grammatically, every pronoun, every time he uses the word you, you can't see it in English, but it's clear in Greek, every one of those uses, plural. And every verb that he uses, it's found in the very grammar of, of, of the text. Every verb is in the plural. He is speaking to them as a group. He even says in verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle. And then another place, Paul will say, the weapons of our warfare. Our response to the things that come against us, that would discourage us, that would confuse us, that would deceive us. Our response is so much better if we respond as the collective body of Christ. And again... I would suggest that one of the reasons we often do so poorly in our struggle with sin and our struggle with discouragement and our struggle with confusion and with doubt is because we try to do so much alone. Me and Jesus. Yeah, that's, that's the mentality that curses us, right? But we would do so much better when the enemy comes against us to discourage us, to deceive us, if we were to form the phalanx, if you will. Look at all the other pieces. We'll just do this really quickly that Paul talks about. They're all 
so much better collectively. He says in verse 14, having girded your loins with truth. Truth is a, is a relational term. Going back to Zechariah 8, 8, 16. These are the things which you should do, the prophet says. Speak the truth to one another. I mean, what, how does truth work if it's not relational, right? We have to speak to one another. Judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates. Talks about the breastplate of righteousness. Jeremiah 23, 23. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she, that is the city, will be called the Lord, our righteousness. I don't know about you. I don't especially feel righteous. There are very few days. Frankly, I can't think of any when I feel righteous. If I do, I know I'm in trouble. But in this collected body, yes, there is a righteousness in this collective body. The preparation of the gospel of peace can be just as easily translated attentiveness. Attentive to what scripture says about the church, the body of Christ. The helmet of salvation. As I mentioned, they found thousands of these things on battlefields. And the reason is they were usually the first things the soldiers ditched. Try it on after the service. It is like really uncomfortable. You wouldn't want to wear one. Um, and often, just out of sheer frustration, they would ditch them. And then, of course, I would almost always regret that immediately after, right? But it was needed for its not only protection, but also its identification. You mash that many people together, and you can't stand back and look at the guy before you decide whether he's friend or foe. I, the, the point being... This common salvation that we share is what identifies us, right? And, and probably the best one that illustrates this point, other than the shield, of course, is the sword, right? That, this is where that whole crusader thing really blows up, right? How long was the crusader's sword? It's a great big long thing, right? I don't know if any of you, because again, this is the visual I, I had for a long time. How many of you have had the opportunity to go to the William Wallace Museum at Stirling in Scotland? and actually see that stinking thing? I am kid you not, it's like this long. It's one of the few things, if anything, Hollywood underplayed. That sword is massive. And I, I remember thinking when we were looking at it like, you know, he starts swinging that thing, I don't want to be anywhere close to him. Even if you're his friend, right? I don't think even right behind him would be a very safe place because it's massive. And he's swinging it back and forth. The sword that Paul refers to in this text, there's several words in Greek for sword. The one that he uses is one about this long. Now that probably doesn't jive with what you'll find in the again, Bible bookstore for, you know, armor of God toys or whatever, you know. Um, really short. Now you may wonder, what kind of, what kind of you fight, how do you fight a battle with a, a sword that short? Well, again, Posanius, the historian, tells us a great, a great anecdote of, again, a family that had provided their son with all of his armor. And the son came to the mother after. These women were tough. These women were tough. Son came to his mom and said, this is a, tr a true anecdote. Posanius records it. Came to his mom and he complained about how short his sword was. And the mom said, son, if when you're in battle you find your sword is too short, if you will take a step forward, you will find it's long enough. <laughs> These moms, they were tough. They were tough, right? But it had to be that short because of the intimate nature of, what, of, of the formation they were in. All of it 
all of it talks about this singular truth that we must fight this fight together. So what does a modern Christian phalanx look like? Certainly it's not a body of a bunch of people going out to, you know, hack and cleave and destroy. It's a life group. Life groups are really good phalanx. A prayer chain, really good phalanx. Family simply getting together for a meal, meeting somebody for coffee, responding when somebody is sick or there's other need, uh, a phone call or a text that says, hey, I need prayer, and a call or text back that says, I will pray for you, we will pray with you. Whenever we move towards one another in the body of Christ, we are forming the phalanx. And that is the way we can respond to all the junk that comes our way. That's the method. By faith and community, we face the enemy of our souls. Now, some might think, because all of this is the purpose of standing, right? That's what Paul says. He says it like four times, stand. Some of us think, you know, standing isn't that important. Shouldn't we be out like trying to move things forward? Don't sell standing short. Because when we stand, we affirm who we are in Christ. When we stand, we work to live our lives in a manner that reflects who we are. And if you want any proof of how important standing is, consider how much grief you take for simply trying to stand. It's a pretty good meter, the threat that, that we present when we simply stand. When we stand, we win. When we stand, we win. It's as simple as this. It's an expression of, a, of an ancient mathematician. He said, Dos pupusto que tienen higi. Yeah, he happened to be a Greek. He said, give me a place to stand, and I will move the world. That's true of the Christian community, if it's true of anyone. Give us somewhere to stand and we will move this world. Father, I thank you for your word, Lord. And as we, um, Father, as we look at this, it's, it's so far away from our culture. We can easily kind of, you know, get lost in trying to figure it all out. But the point is so simple, Lord. And it's a point that completely transcends time. It's a point that completely transcends time. That this body, which is your church, and everybody which constitutes your church, Every time believers gather in your name to draw close to you, Lord, as we draw closer to one another, Father, we present to the enemy of our souls an impenetrable wall. Father, if we can be wise enough to take full advantage of that, our lives will be so much better. We, we will know what it is to live victorious in Christ. Help us to be wise to that. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.